0: You know, praise is really bragging about God because praise is about who God is and thanksgiving is for what He's done. And I just want to commend all of you today for your praise because I think today, in true reformation stance, the issue is God. Thank God for God. And so we've celebrated Him today and so that's great. Hey, if you didn't get a Bible coming in, one of the ushers can grab you one if you just look up your hand but we're in Exodus chapter nineteen and so if you'd uh, grab your Bible and, and turn there Eric uh, grabbing some Bibles it's on page fifty one in the in the uh Bibles that uh, you would have grabbed just hook up your hand he's got them right there, so, you know, there we go. thanks Eric. couple more over here on the front left here. Hey, today I want to talk to you for a couple minutes about purity. You know, our society has certain laws that guard purity. We have a thing called, uh, it's a department in our government, it's called the uh, Food and Drug Administration. And they're charged with kind of a, a, a being the watchdog of purity. They have certain standards that, that say, you know, this, this is a level that you have to maintain for something to be uh, legitimately good enough for you to have. Now, those laws might surprise you. I've done a little research this last week. I am not making any of this up. What I'm about to tell you: apple butter averages four or more rodent hairs per hundred grams, and if it could averages five or more whole insects, not counting mites, which are okay with the U.S. government, the FDA will pull it. Otherwise, it goes right on your bagel. Mushrooms. When you get 15 grams of mushrooms, they're okay unless there's an average of 20 or more maggots of any size. Fig page. If there are more than 13 insect heads per 100 grams, the FDA will process. it. I guess apparently other insect parts are okay. Uh, now for you caffeine addicts you are going to get a little nervous right now because coffee coffee beans will only get what's drawn from the market if there's an average of 10% or more of them that are insect infected. Hot dogs. You don't even want to know. If they took all the impurities out of hot dogs, there wouldn't be anything on them. So, all these things being equal, would we all agree we kind of prefer purity? You know? But we're prepared to put up with a little lower standard, and the FDA has defined what that standard is for us. There's a certain amount of impurity that is acceptable. Now, this is not just true with fig paste and hot dog. It's true in our own heart. It's true with our mind. It's true with the words that we speak. It's true about our culture. It's true about our media. It's true about our relationships with other people. We live in an impure world. And every human being, all of us, every human being who's ever lived and every human being who'll ever live, what we do is we convince ourselves that our little impurities don't really matter that much. They don't really amount to that much. They're really quite tolerable. But when you add them all up, and you have this tragedy in the world which we live in, it's kind of a downward spiral into what's called sin. Now, you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus 19, it's on page 51. Today we come to the foot of Mount Sinai. And here's this ragtag group of frightened, grumbling, (laughs) ungrateful. Take me back to Egypt slaves. And they have no real sense of identity yet as a group of people, and they also really don't have a true knowledge of God yet. They're thoroughly impure. Now how can God possibly get them to appreciate how high the stakes are for their lives? And and how can he get them to change from their grasping, clutching, rubbing, grabbing, fearing state? Because that's all they've ever known. But God has a plan. Look at verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. I want you to notice something here for a second. This is all before God gives the Ten Commandments. He reminds Israel of his loving concern for them. He says, I carried you out of needle in it. And he describes his intention for their future by using three phrases. He says you'll be a treasured possession. He says you'll be a kingdom of priests. And he says, and by the way, when you're a priest, you can deal directly with God. And he says in verse 6, you'll be a holy nation. In other words, you guys will be a model community set apart from the rest of the world to draw other people on earth to meet Now, Look at the extent of the preparations that had to go on in order for them to go up and meet God, starting at verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and have them wash their clothes, and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. They shall surely be stoned and shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. Whether people or animals, they shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. Now I'll tell you what God is doing right here. I think He's establishing a new category in the minds and the hearts of the Israelites. And that is that there's something holy here. Look over verse 23 for a minute. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain, and set it apart as holy. And if you have your own Bible, you might want to underline set it apart because that's what holy means. Originally, the root word for holy simply meant to be set apart, not to be touched by anything else. I'll give you a modern example of that. When Kathy and I lived for 11 years in Chicago. One of our favorite places to eat, and our kids' favorite place, is a place called Portillo's. And one of the things at Portillo's is they have this chocolate cake. As one of my friends said, it's to die for. It is the best chocolate cake in the world. And so we had some friends here a couple of weeks ago. We we're visiting, it, and we and we do this as a family for all We drive over to Portillo's to have. It's a hot dog place, to be honest with you, but it's the chocolate cake. And the chocolate cake shake too. So, my wife was a little fool and She decided to buy a piece of chocolate cake and to bring it home to eat later. And my wife put a little note right by the cake, and it had one word no. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And the message was pretty clear because it was really intended for me was this, for every other cake in the house, you may freely eat, but of this cake, the chocolate cake from Portillo's, you may not eat, for on the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die, because this cake has been set apart, it's holy. Now, that's the routine. This is why the Bible talks about many objects as being holy. They've been set aside, set apart for a special purpose. Remember last week when we studied about Moses coming up the mountain, and God says, take off your shoes because you're on what? Holy ground. We said holiness, a holy ground is wherever God is present. Verse twenty-three here, it says the mountain, says sometimes uh, it will be clothing, sometimes it might be food. But none of these things are holy in and of themselves. Only God is holy himself. And only God can make something holy when he touches it. Objects become holy when they're set aside for a special use for God. So, for example, we have communion. If we are truly reformed, we should probably have a table here all the time. Because the communion table in the Reformed tradition was supposed to be the center of worship. And... When we take that grape juice, we all know it's grape juice, but we set it aside. We set it apart for a silly meal. And it becomes holy in that we're using it for a set purpose that has to do with God's holiness. So, by the way, this set-apartness was a very common thing even in other religions, where they would have holy objects because they were set apart for a certain thing. But here's the unique thing about God's holiness. The holiness that, that sets God apart came to be understood as his moral excellence, It had to do with his character. His blinding purity. His His pure character. This God is set apart from sin. And that's why he's a holy God. And the problem is that the people at the foot of the mountain, they're, like you and me, are steeped in sin. And so since the fall has marked all of us that way, we have this terrible ambivalence about God. Because on the one hand, we're really drawn towards Him and His holiness, and on the other hand, we're terribly afraid of it. We long for it, we know we need it, and yet we fear it will be strung. You know, there's many statements in the Scripture about this. In Deuteronomy 4.24, Moses says, For our God is a consuming fire. And so there's this aspect of fear about the holiness of God. Now, what we're about to read is an attempt to describe what I think is the indescribable. fallen human beings who are now going to meet this holy, transcendent God. And so, I want me to just read this text for us from Exodus 19. I think he'll be starting at verse 14 and. And I just want you to, as you read, would you just imagine, the best you can, what it would have been like to be standing at the base of that mountain, and what it would mean to be right there in the presence of the Holy God. And by the way, when he, when he reads about the temple glass, it's always associated in Israel with the sound of worship. It meant, the Lord Yahweh is coming. And uh, so, Nate, would you read for us? After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourself for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. And on the third day of the morning... On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the tramp camp assembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. See what's interesting about that? They hear the trumpet sounds, but there's no human being blowing the trumpet, so everyone trembled. If you want to know what the people's response looked like, I'd like you to turn over to chapter 20, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning, and they heard the trumpet, and they saw the mountain and spoke, they trembled with fear. And they stayed at a distance, and they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. By the way, this is very consistent with many encounters that people have throughout the Scriptures with God. The first thing that happens is they just get overwhelmed. They become undone by their own sense of fallenness. You know, Isaiah had this magnificent vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And when he sees God lofty and exalted, he says, "Woe no, is me, for I am ruined. Literally, I'm undone. I disintegrated in the presence of the holy God. When Peter is out fishing and doesn't catch anything, and Jesus comes and he says, Hey, throw your net on the other side. Before we've fished all night we haven't caught anything. He says, "Throw your net on the other side. And when they pulled up, it's so loaded with fish. And Peter realizes who's in his presence. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Moses in the 3, when he comes to the burning bush, and God speaks to him at first, and said that he was afraid and he could not look at God what happens? We live in a very casual society. I don't know if you ever really reflect about the holiness of God. I don't know if you ever tremble about who God is. If any of you read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, great. And if you haven't, my job in life is to get you to read them, so when I get to heaven, God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But in the Chronicles, in the first Chronicle of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene where the children have entered into Narnia, and they hear about this great Christ figure whose name is Aslan. Now, you might pronounce it Aslan, but when I first read the book in my mind, I pronounced it Aslan, so all these years I pronounced it that way, so that, that's for me. So anyway, they're hearing about this great Christ figure, and it occurs to them as they're going with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to meet. Aslan, that they might be a little nervous because they're going to meet this magnificent being. And so the teacher and the guide, Mr. Beaver, says, when they say, you know, we'll be a little nervous, he says, that you will, make no mistake. Anybody who could appear before Aslan without their knees knocking is either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. I love that line. Safe haven't you been listening at all, said Mr. Beaver? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Look at Moses' response in Exodus twenty twenty. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you. By the way, this is the key. If you don't take anything out of today's sermon, would you take this? God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And notice the paradox there about fear. The people say, keep him at a distance from us. He's not safe. And Moses says, who said anything about being safe? He's coming to put the fear of God in you so that you'll be done with all the folly and the destructiveness of sin in your own lives. Of course he's not safe. But he's still Don't be afraid. And on this mountain, God speaks and he gives them the Ten Commandments, which will become the cornerstone of ethical guidelines that has ultimately changed the world. Here's what I want us to ask. You, I want to ask us to do. I'm going to have the Ten Commandments come up on the screen here as a way of honoring God's word. I'm going to ask that you would stand together and we'll read through them one at a time. And then Nate is just going to give us after each one just a, a quick couple sentences. Commentary on each of those things. So let's stand together. You shall have no other gods before one. Make following God your highest priority. Make identity with Him what you cherish most. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Clearly, what God is saying here is, serve me alone. Don't let your attention be diverted to anything that's less valuable. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is more than just profanity. This is speaking the holy name of God, which Jews were unwilling to even pronounce in ways which uh, are not appropriate. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. This commandment reveals that God knows us well. In seven days, one of those days, we should set apart for rest. We should focus on spiritual things. We should devote ourselves to thinking about God and His kingdom. By the way, the early church decided to move the Sabbath to Sunday as a memorial to the resurrection. So, on Sunday, Christians pause in the same way. Honor your father and your mother. Clearly, the idea here is to honor them, take care of them. When they become older and unable to care for themselves, we are to take responsibility for them. But it's more than just physical responsibility. I think we're also to care for their emotional needs. We are to support them and... Help them to uh, feel like they are important to us, which they are. You shall not murder. That's pretty clear. Um, The possibility of the Hebrew word is murder or kill. I think murder is the correct translation here. Premeditated murder is what's intended. God is the giver and taker of life. We are not to intervene in taking the life of one of His children. You shall not commit adultery. Once again, a very important boundary. The Hebrews says the marriage bed is pure and undefiled. We must not cross that boundary at the risk of harming ourselves and others. You shall not steal. The Christian life is the life of a giver, not a taker. To take that which is not yours is to dishonor God who provides all things we need. You shall not bear false witness. This is a matter of integrity. The idea here is talking in court or in a legal way about someone which is untrue. uh, defaming someone. Slandering someone. That is not appropriate for a child of God. You shall not covet. Wanting that which your neighbor has to be yours. Once again, the idea is God has blessed each of us in our time with wonderful things. C.S. Lewis, once again, would say the root of sin is to want something which is not given to us. To uh, to want again what was given to us in the future, or to want now what someone else has been given. We are to be content with what God has given. You may be seated. When those Ten Commandments were given to the children of Israel, they became their prized possession. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. Someday I think we should do a whole series on the Ten Commandments. Because we could take a ten-week series and do because we could spend a whole time just on each of those commandments individually. But here's what I want to do. I've been doing the pastor thing for enough years to know that when we talk about the Ten Commandments and we talk about the law in general, a number of questions come up. So I want to just spend the the couple minutes that we have time remaining to look at some of those questions. Here's the first one. Sometimes somebody will say, like, you know in the Old Testament uh, the God of the Old Testament, it's all about law. You know, the Old Covenant means that people got saved by keeping the law. And so are you trying to tell me that the God of the Old Testament is a God of grace? Now we really need to be clear about this the law, including the Ten Commandments, was never given to people so that they could earn God's favor. It was never given as a way of of somehow attaining a righteousness by keeping this law. This was never God's way of dealing with human beings. It was given to them because God was already gracious to them. When you look at that first statement in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God. This is a covenant statement. I mentioned a few weeks ago that there's been some exciting archaeological discoveries uh, in the last century, particularly with the Hittite nation, and they've uncovered treaties and covenants that were made. And these covenants all had certain elements that were true right across the board. And they were kind of uh, features that existed in covenants. And the first one thing that would be true was a preamble. And what would happen is that somebody, like a powerful king, would identify who who they were, and what their relationship was to the subjects of the people that they were making the covenant with. And then they would have some type of historical review. You know, what what this benevolent king had done for these people in the past. And then there would be certain stipulations or statements about what was expected behavior. You know, how are these two parties in the covenant going to relate to each other? You know, what will you bring and what will I bring to this, this agreement? And then there would be provisions for the storage of the copies of the covenant. And this is real important because then they could keep it and they could read it later publicly. And then there would be curses and blessings associated with the covenant. If you kept the covenant, these blessings. If you break the covenant, these curses. And then covenants would feature a vow of faithfulness where the people would say, I will be a covenant keeper. Now, here's the significance of this stuff. In this passage in Exodus and scattered throughout the whole rest of the Pentateuch, these features are all true about the covenant that God makes with us. The preamble is right there in Exodus 20, verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God, and the keyword is your. God has given himself to these people as their God before he's ever even given them a commandment. They haven't kept anything yet, and he already says, I'm your God. And then there's a historical review the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and delivered you from slavery before you did anything to deserve it, I was already active there. And it's only then that he begins to give the Ten Commandments on how to relate to him. But they were never intended as a list of rules that somebody had to keep in order to attain their salvation. And then... He talks about how he redeemed them from Israel or from Egypt, how he made them his people, and these are intended to describe what a covenant relationship with God is supposed to be. What would it be like to be a kingdom of priests and to be a holy nation? What would that look like? Well, covenant is a binding commitment. First, it's foundational for everything. So let's take the marriage covenant, for example. Suppose that I would have said to my wife, Kathy, before we got married, Kathy, wash my clothes, fix my meals, carry my golf club, clean my house, make snacks for me during the derrick game, and if you do these things well enough, then I will marry you. Do you think that she would have responded very well to that? <laughs> I don't think so. But once you're married, you think those actions would just flow naturally. (laughs) Bad example. Bad example. (laughs) But God's covenant is a grace deal. It's always been true. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. People have always been saved by faith, by trusting in a gracious and forgiving God, and there's no other way. It can never be earned. I'll give you another indicator of the fact that the Ten Commandments were really in the context of the covenant of grace. I mentioned that those ancient covenants, they had a pr- uh, uh, provision for preserving the, co- the commandments or the covenant. Moses brings the Ten Commandments down and how many are there? How many tablets? Two. Of course, if you saw the history of the world with no book. he comes down with three tablets and he trips and one of them falls and breaks and he goes, the 15, I mean, the Ten Commandments, you know. But but why were there two tablets? Now, I don't know about you, but I always thought it was because there wasn't enough room on one tablet to write all ten. And so there were five on one tablet and five on the other. But biblical scholars have pretty much agreed that that's not true. Almost certainly, there were two tablets with all ten commandments on each tablet. Because when the covenant was made, part of the process involved this provision of making two copies, one for each party, so that they could be reread or read publicly. So, I think each of those tablets, from everything that I've studied, is, had the Ten Commandments on each tablet. One copy belonged to Israel. So who does the other copy belong to? God. And God is giving Israel both copies of the covenant. And he says later in Exodus chapter twenty-five, put the tablet in the Ark of the Covenant and take them with you. For where you will be, I will be. I will be with you. And every time they saw those tablets, they didn't see what we tend to see when we look at them as a list of rules. They saw them as a promise of God's presence. They saw God's copy of the covenant that they were his people and he was with them. The very first line, I am the Lord your God, and then they carried those copies with them. And this is why when Israel is disobedient, remember they broke the covenant right out of the gate by worshiping the golden calf? Remember how Moses responded? He smashed the tablets and he shattered them. And I don't think this is just because of an outburst of anger. I think the vow of the covenant was, You know, Moses is doing symbolically what the people were literally doing, and that was breaking this covenant. And so the law was a covenant gift that God gave His people, and it was a description of what it would look like for them to live as a holy nation and as a kingdom of priests. It was given as an instruction to show them how to live. It was given as kind of a diagnosis that they really did need God's grace. In fact, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 3. He says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, would it have come as a surprise to people in the Old Testament that they needed forgiveness? I think if you've been reading it all in the the Old Testament, you'll know, man, they have lots of sacrifices for sin. A lot of atoning had to be made. I mean, you should be glad you were not a seat back in those days. (laughs) Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 14 2. This is Old Testament. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Old Testament people knew that they needed grace. They knew they needed forgiveness. And the writers and the thinkers and the followers of God were very much aware that God's grace was their only hope. And that's why the sacrificial system existed. Now, sometimes people wonder about this whole one in the Old Testament. Is, is it the sacrificial system that got people saved? No. In fact, when people thought in those days that they could live any way they wanted to, in other words, they could plot the law, in the, you know, they could say in my heart, I believe this, but then live any way they wanted to because kind of God owed me a ticket to heaven because I offered animal sacrifices. And when people thought and lived that way, I want to tell you what it did it infuriated God. And the prophets talk about this over and over again. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 1, this is God speaking. Verse 11 The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough for an offering. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend, or one translation says, encourage the oppressed. Think up the cause of the fatherless. And by the way, uh, there's kind of this mechanical thinking that God owes me a ticket to heaven because I did something. I think it's pretty common today. And sometimes people think, nobody here, of course, but sometimes people will think, you know, even though I'm living in direct, willful disobedience to God's command, God still owes me a ticket to heaven because I walked down the aisle, or I prayed a prayer, or I signed a card, or I, you know, I can point to a date. I think that's a real dangerous road to walk down. The issue that God is concerned about is always a heart issue. Always. Now, years ago, my mother said, Bill, you'll be remembered for what you don't say and not for what you do say. So, I'll try to pull this together now. I think there's something else you ought to know about the law. Is the Paradigms, for example, that flawed, apply in broad laws. Uh, in our society today, in the United States, you know, we, we try to make laws that cover exhaustively every issue that might come up. For instance, in Deuteronomy 24:20, when it says about the olive trees, he says, when you beat the branches so the the olives come down, don't go back and beat them a second time. Now, that sounds so like, oh, brother, I mean, why are we getting so specific? And then the text says, "Leave them for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow so they can come through and find something. The principle behind it was a concern for the poor. So, if you're a farmer, he's saying, be a little sloppy so that the poor can have some food. Now, it only mentions olive trees. So if you have fig trees, and this is how the Jews tend to get pretty technical, well I've got a fig tree, so it doesn't apply to me that if I have a fig tree, so I can take everything down off the tree. And the judges in Israel will come and they'd say, No, no, there's a principle involved here. Leave something for the poor. It was a period. It was an example. And the point here is that the law was never, ever about a kind of narrow, legalistic thinking, nitpicking, rule-keeping mentality. It's never about that. So there would be a few broad statements of laws, and there would be a lot of specific examples so that people would get, get it concrete and actually obey it. But it was always about the heart since Christ, our relationship with the law has fundamentally changed. Old Testament law can be put into three categories. And by the way, this kind of comes from John Calvin, which I thought would be pretty good to throw in today, uh, being Reformation Sunday. And the one thing that Nate never talked about was John Knox, the great Scottish reformer. Because there's an old line that goes, theology is conceived in Germany, corrupted in Scotland, and corrupted in America. And uh, so... Anyway, the law, he put into three categories. Civil law, and we understand that in terms of, we're obviously, because now Christians are of many nations, we live under the laws of a particular country. At that time, they lived under the law of Israel. And now there's many nations. So, civil laws is, is one thing. Then, ritual law ceremonial law. And these are laws that had to do with the sacrificial system, with cleanliness versus uncleanliness, with worship the laws about circumcision and a great example of that is in the New Testament where people became Christians and they said in order to be Christian, you have to be circumcised and they tried to put an Old Testament law onto these new Christians and, and that became a great debate in the early church and they said no, circumcision of the heart is what's important. It's not this, this outward uh, thing. And then the other uh, law that came and, and I don't have time to get into dietary laws but one thing Jesus said is it's not the food that goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what's in your heart that comes out that defiles you. And so he said, food goes doesn't go into your heart, it goes into your stomach and out the body. In Mark chapter 7, verse 19, it says, In sameness, Jesus declared all food clean. So if you've been eating lobster, you're okay. <laughs> but more than that, he's showing the categories of clean and unclean really existed all along to help people develop clean hearts. And that's the point that we ultimately need to have clean hearts. And then you have the moral law. And so, we'll just jump ahead. My final and most personal question for you is, how are you doing in the business of holiness? You know, in Exodus 24, after Moses reads the book of the covenant, the people make a vow of faithfulness. And in Exodus 24-7, people say, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And then they struggled. But the great hope of the Old Testament was the day that was going to come when God said, I will put my law on their minds and I will write my law on their hearts. In other words, the day is coming when it would no more occur to a human being to try to break one of the Ten Commandments any more than they would try to break the law of gravity. Not because people would be rule keepers, but because at last, they really do love because their hearts now are finally ready. Now understand that this is a developmental process from back in the garden when God first gave the commands orally, and then we have these commands that are written down. And then the prophets come and they say, clarifying, this isn't about sacrificing animals. Psalm 51. You don't desire sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. What you desire is a broken and contrite heart, O God. Remember what Jesus said? Don't think for a minute that I came to abolish the law, because the law was a great gift. But I came to fulfill the law. And then at Pentecost, when God sends His Holy Spirit, I hope you understand that this is a developmental process, and it was all for you. It is so you and I could have this magnificent and beautiful law, the intent of God for human, human beings, written on our heart. It's not so that we can walk around and keep a bunch of mechanical rules and show how righteous we are. You know, the whole point is that we can think and feel and live just to change felt and thought and will, and to speak the truth and to do justice and to do compassion and to give generously because that's what you want to do. This all happens so that you and I could become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and that we would have the law of God written on our hearts. So how are we doing? How are we doing? I'd like to ask you to close your eyes as we close now. Just would you take a moment and ask yourself, what would it be like if in my life, if this magnificent law of God was written on my heart? What would it be like if I lived the kind of life that Jesus did right now, in my home, at my work, in my school, with my relationships. There was this amazing vow that this stumbling into group of people standing at the foot of the holy mountain of God said to God, they said, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. And I just want to ask you this morning, if you can do it with integrity, maybe you'd say what those people said. I will do everything the Lord has said, and I will obey. And if there's anything that can get in the way of that, if there's anything that needs to be confessed, confess it right now. Tell God what you really do want, which I think is this law written in your heart. And ask Him to purify you even right now to set you apart for a holy purpose.